Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting So, fellow models of memory today, and I guess next time, we have a classroom we can catch up, so it's not like we're losing too much here. Um, and frankly, my son's way more important than any of you in the room except, well, one of you. So, uh, okay, there's really two types of models I want to talk about. And in general, there are two types of models when we talk about models of really almost anything in the life sciences, if you think about it. Um, there's models that look at specific phenomena. There's ACT-STAR and TLC. We talked about those already. We talked about those in the semantic memory part, right? The active control of thought and the teachable language comprehender. They, they talk about very specific phenomena. Remember, these are both about basically representing knowledge. And then there are models that look at general organization. Or, yeah, this is different. Um, ACT is different. is the most obvious one. So there's two kinds of things. The ones that look at specific phenomena tend to be mathematical. The ones that look at general things don't tend to be mathematical. There is some overlap, of course. Okay. And those of you that took learning understand this. Again, think about the score the Wagner model is, a very, is about a very specific thing, classical conditioning, and it's mathematical. The sort of general idea of looking at associative learning fits more here. So the question one could ask is, why would you want to do this in general? Well, let's go, okay, that's fine, whatever you want. Models, the thing they do is they organize data. They organize data. And they make explicit predictions if they're any good. You know, I guess one could say, for example, that Freud's notions were also models, but they don't make any predictions. They can lead to applications. Now, Think about this. After the point applications, well, even just something as simple as understanding your short and long-term memory. Right? Which, again, is probably too simple, but it could allow someone who's a clinician to make some appropriate kind of suggestions to someone who had problems, let's say, with working memory. It's not going to be problems with long-term memory. It's problems with working memory. So you could lead to applications. Um, these first two are, in fact, what science is supposed to do. Organize data and make predictions. That's what science does. So, in fact, modeling is going to be a good thing. I'm trying to sell you on the idea that just looking at phenomena isn't really going to be horribly useful unless we can organize it. So we're always modeling, even if it's on, on the very small scale. We're almost always doing this. But it's very common in cognition. Sort of cognitive research very often there's a, there's a big model. And the same thing as I said, in biology you see a lot of that too. Okay, questions so far, does this make sense? Okay. So let's talk about SAM. This is the search of associative memory. I do not want you to get too bogged down in this. There was a time when I taught this course when there was a lot of math here. I have removed all the math, because I don't think it helps anybody. If you go to graduate school and want to learn all about this, go ahead. But it is a mathematical okay? So I'm not going to get too much into, I'm going to give you broad strokes about Sam. That sounds perhaps pornographic. Um, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, 
We're basically looking, what, what SAM does is look at list learning results. So again, this is going to be specific to a specific phenomenon, learning a list of words. And it's about really that only. It's going to be about recognition and recall of words. So again, this is why you would probably see something specific in mathematical. So what the, what the model does, this isn't a person that does this, this is what the model does, is you give the model a list of words. Okay? And then you have the model recall or recognize the words. This is all done with computers. So it's magic. Okay. So you got to remember this. This isn't, it's supposed to describe people, but the way you do it is you do it with a computer and see if the results look like what you get with people. If they do, then you're probably on to something. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with doing this, it's just that you have to remember when you read a paper, if, you, if any of you do for your, uh, uh, for your essays or your presentations, a lot of times, if you think about modeling, it's going to be all, a lot of times you're going to realize, oh, right, there are no participants. It's an IBM computer that's the participant. Okay? Okay. So, like, all models have assumptions. And because it's a mathematical model, it's going to have very specific assumptions. Okay, target items, these are words, are viewed in relation to the memory representations of all other items learned. So, in other words, the words themselves have... Associations, basically, to the other words in the list, and then they have associations to say the context. Now, the context is the other words; it's how close another word is to that word in the list. So, you're probably going to get a somewhat stronger association between words two and three and three and four than you get between word three and word five. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what I'm talking about here with context. We're not really talking about the room you're in. Because it's a computer model. It's not like the model's going to remember better if it's using a match. It doesn't work that way. So the context really... Now, you could put context parameters in the model. So you could say, you could throw time of day in if you like, or something like that. That you could do. So these items are to be learned. They are associated with the context. In other words, with the words around them. When words are presented, they are rehearsed by the model. So there's a rehearsal parameter in the calculations. Now, this is nice because you're throwing in something called a familiarity value. How familiar is a word? And that's going to have really two components when you think about it. It's going to have how, how common the word is in English or whatever language you're using. We're going to use English here. So how familiar the word is, so if it's the word bottle, it's going to have a higher familiarity value than the word verisimilitude. It's a word people don't use that often as all. It's also going to have a familiarity value, think about this, of when you're studying a list, if you're studying it more than once, if you're going over the list over and over, you being a computer model, the familiarity value is going to go up because you've seen the word before. 
Does that make sense? Okay, so it's got two components, this familiarity part. And I've seen work done where they, they just make all the words equal, equally familiar. By the way, a lot of times it doesn't really learn words. It just, it, they're kind of, they're not really, it's just simulations. Okay, so it really is odd, this kind of stuff. The number of times I never go into talks, I was at U of T, uh, grad school to the cognition uh, and memory talks, and you'd see someone talk about the model, and the number of times very smart people, this includes people like Endel Tolving and Gus Craig, would say, now, are you talking about people or a computer? I can't, I can't take this straight in my head. So it's not just you and me that can't do this. It's also people that are smarter than us and retired. Okay. Is this an old word or a new word? This is based on the familiarity value. So now think about this. This is if, let's say, I've given the model a list of words. And now I'm going to get, and I said, uh, said to the model, study this list. And now I said to the model, Here's a list of words. Which words were on the list? The model is now going to look at old words. Well, this is the old words rather than what they've studied, and the new words which they haven't studied. The new ones are not going to have, be as familiar as the old one, so that's when they're going to have a decision of recognizing the word or not. Are you still with me? Is it making some sense? Okay. This is basically a signal detection theory. How many people here know about signal detection theory? Who knows? Who knows? Nobody? Nobody? Some of you kind of have a little bit, like a little, little bit of this. See, Maddie and Cassie going, mm -hmm. Cassie's a fridge white. I look at her and say, oh, I'm just going to scratch my nose. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> so, basically, signal detection theory is very, well, it's actually exceedingly complicated, but in a straightforward fashion, it's for perceptual research, was there a Stimulus or not? I asked you the question: Did the light go on? Did the light not go on? Yes or no? And the light either went on or didn't go on. So you've got hits. That's when the light was on, and you said yes. You've got misses. That's when the light was on, and you said no. You've got false alarms. You said the light went on. It wasn't on. You've got correct rejections. It's kind of like hypothesis. Well, that's all this is, except it's about remembering whole items, <coughs> not just about perceptual phenomena. So each item has a certain strength. And it's based on the amount of rehearsal that can be done during encoding. And you get an association between the stimulus and the word itself, the representation of the word. So the stimulus is association, this one here. And then you have a rep uh, that stimulus. And then there's the word, the representation of what that word means. And there's an association between the stimulus and the context. The context are the other words around it, typically. And then this final point is a bit redundant, but item retrieval is based on prompts by the experimenter. In other words, you say to the person, I'm sorry, the computer, see? You say to the computer, now recall the words, and it spits them out. It searches associative memory looks for familiarity values of words that it has, and ones that are above a certain threshold, it spits out. Ones below the threshold, it doesn't spit out. It's kind of like, it's actually, I know this seems very complicated, but it's kind of intuitive in a way, too. Okay. So, 
Retrieval depends on the joint contribution of the context, all the words, and of all other items, so not just the words around it, but all the other items, and the item itself. Those are all added up, those values, and if they are greater than a certain threshold value that you set, you be the programmer, the experimenter, then the word is retrieved. So its strength is then is basically the sum of all the associated strengths in the list. This actually really nicely explains why recognition is easier than recall. That's one thing that this does, and I hope if you can really get one thing out of this, it's that recognition is, fairly, is easier, easier than recall, and that's because you are given the stimulus itself, which will increase the retrieval value. When you see it, it's going to add to the associated strength to make it easier to recognize that word is what you've seen before. Rather than just recalling, because you don't have that extra stimulus added into the associated strength. Okay? It explains um, why when you have longer presentations of words, you get better memory, more time to rehearse, and more time to encode the item itself. It explains retention interval effects. This is because the context changes subtly. Because as time passes, the context changes just a little bit, but it changes a little bit. It explains serial position effects. Early items get more rehearsal. Early items get more stuff associated with them. It explains something called encoding specificity, which is the idea that if I've encoded this word as... Hmm, I don't know what it is. If I encoded this word as a representation of a thing, it's going to be easier to recall when I get that word back because it's a thing rather than a uh, concept. And explains, I just mentioned this recognition failure of recall, which is I can recognize stuff, but I can't recall it. Okay, that's good. That sounds great. Dennis, this is a pretty nice model. <coughs> but now we get into the yeah buts. There's a lot of assumptions in this thing. It took me how long? It took me about 15 minutes to have one of the assumptions. Now there could be assumptions. Sure. But that's a lot of assumptions. Now here's one that's always puzzled me, and it may be because I don't understand this as well as I should. But if everything has a con we had a word, let's say we had uh, let's say we got Chuck. We used to have all kinds of brightly colored chalk in this room. Got a word. Word one. Okay, and I got word two. Now word two is related to word one, and word one is related to like that. And then I got word three, and it's related to that one. And I got word four. We're going to use five of these, okay? They're all associated with each other. There's your context. That's part of the context. The other part of the context that are associated with, let's say, is presentation time. Fine. They're also associated with whatever the meanings are for each of them. Right? 
case now if I recall word two, that it just makes me recall all the other words. The way I would this is what I'm saying. It kind of looks like that to me. Now, how do you deal with that? What you have to do is put in basically a decay parameter for each of these connections. Okay? So when you start having to put more and more parameters into a model, when you put you know, a lot of free parameters, that means you don't have a great model. I can predict how you will all do in school. Really? Yes. I just need to see all of your grades, each one of you separately. So I'm not going to, I can build a model and predict everybody. There's 42 people in this class. I have, in essence, then, 42, let's get statistical, degrees of freedom. But if I say, okay, Taylor, you know the grades. Corey, you know the grades. I know your grades. I know your grades. All your grades. All your best. Now, I just use yours to predict you, use yours to predict you, use yours to predict you. Do I have a good model? No. I've lost, in fact, if I exhaust all the degrees of freedom, I don't have a model anymore. I just have a description of stuff. Right? You want to have very few free parameters. But this thing has to always have a lot of not of, of, of fixed parameters. You don't like that. Okay? You see why that's a criticism? I'm not saying I can build one of these models, but I can sit here and I can tear it down. Because I'm not a builder, I'm a destroyer. And you've got that net. Sounded good though in my head. Um, okay, that's the hard one. Now let's do something easier. Let's do levels of processing. It's so nice. Oh, by the way, the levels of processing paper by Craig and Lockhart, the most cited paper uh, in experimental psychology. Uh, when, I guess it was, when was that figured out? Sometime in the 1984, last month. Yeah, this isn't, I don't know why. I've got a paperback. I was like, the most cited paper ever. It's on CMS. Check it out. It's actually really straightforward. Um, Craig and Lockhart. Gus Craig uh, and Bob Lockhart, both at U of T at the time. Uh, both retired now. Uh, Gus Craig came to U of T, uh, came to Western when I was a postdoc to give a talk. And he knew me because I was, you know, like grad school for four years. And he, um, I went to the talk, and uh, so I'm, you know, dressed well. Wearing motorcycle boots and the chains hanging off, and it's the style of time. And um, my jeans had great big holes in them. Right? And I just had his old t shirt on, and we're at the like, faculty club afterwards and discussing things. He goes, Oh, David, it's good to see you got dressed up for me. That was great. What a smart guy, what a super nice guy. Bob Lockhart's great too. I mean, I just didn't know him as well. Um, Gus Craig used to hang out when he'd come to the graduate student parties. He would always hang out by the keg. He'd be there with uh, Ian Spence, our stats class. The two Scottish professors at U of T, at, at the psych part of U of T, would be standing there with the keg. It was great. And then there's another story I can't tell you. Um, so Craig and Lockhart just said that memory's not a passive thing, it's an active thing. And memory is the result of encoding. And I, think, I don't think anybody's arguing with that. And they said there's like basically three levels of processing we do in general, right? The first level is a perceptual analysis. What are these shapes? That's basically the perceptual analysis. It's, it's very simple. It's not anything other than, or it could release sounds if it's, it's spoken with. 
Okay? Then there's pattern recognition. Well, oh, that's the word pattern. And that's the word recognition. I recognize those things. And then there's semantic elaboration. Pattern recognition, well, a pattern is like a group of stuff that happens the same all the time. And recognition is when I see something that I know I've seen it before. It's semantic elaboration. I was elaborating. I was generating stuff. I was generating my own content for my brain, basically. Okay, so that's the idea. There are three levels. Yeah, there's more than three, but that's when they, when they started at this, it's three levels. This is good. Makes sense so far? A lot more sense. And then there's a connection between this and the context, so it's a little easier, right? Okay. Semantic processing produces better memory than procedural, or sort of perceptual processing. Sometimes it's called conceptually driven versus data driven. Conceptually driven is the concept that the word means. Data driven is what the word looks like, what it sounds like. Devoid of meaning. And this is really only true in explicit memory, though it's true in implicit memory, which is a very small effect, but reliable. And it depends on the way it's presented. I, and we didn't even know what it meant. I told you guys that, right? We ended with, we'll let the theoreticians figure this out, which was the best compound I've ever had in the line of the paper. It was basically ending the paper by saying, I don't know. <laughs> And they went for it. Okay. Deeper semantic processing gets better memory. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right? This explains something called the regenerate effect. When I have you just read words, you don't remember them as well as when I have you read words and generate a sentence about them. Or even better, I have you generate the item. I give you a bunch of hints. It's kind of like a you know a password back in the day, or or twenty thousand dollar pyramid, or one of these game shows. It's a thing you wear over top of your other clothes when it's cold out, and it's called uh, you go coat, correct? And that's one of the words. You have to think about the meaning of the word there. That, you remember that way better than if I give you the word coat. That explains a lot, right? Because think about this. You're generating, again, you're generating the content. You're thinking about meaning. I'm making you think of meaning. Meaning? Meaning. <coughs> okay. Plus, it's kind of a fun experiment to run because you can, you, can, you can pretend you're on a game show. person gets a bunch right. You, go, ding, 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 ding. you want a brand new car. Things like that. You shouldn't do that. It's probably bad. Probably ethics will go, you can't do that. They don't really win cars. You're deceiving them. Um, levels. Completely carpet. So, the idea of depth, kind of see, at first it's very specific. Let's, think, let's, let's dig into this. It seems a little vague, doesn't it? When do you get better memory? Well, when you process things more deeply. How do you know you've had deeper processing when you get better memory? Oops. Yeah. Um, I understand what you're saying. This, do these slides relate back to Sam? No, Chris, no. Okay. <laughs> this isn't about Sam anymore. Look, good. Do you have a theory as to that? No, I was just wanting no. to know. No, no, not really. I mean, this is just a much easier way of looking at memory. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> as well as a process. So, 
it's kind of, uh, when I say kind of circular, I kind of mean completely circular. I guess completely isn't fair, because they do lay out the idea of perceptual analysis versus semantic elaboration. That's it. But, and I'll tell you something, both uh, Gus Craig and Bob Lockhart totally recognize this. It's not like they think that it's a potential weakness, but if they were here, they'd point out um, that, you know, you have semantic um, processing. Lovely necklace was left here. And, uh, and I think I, I don't think I can put it in my neck. Maybe as a an maybe perhaps an anklet. Um, <laughs> maybe put it in one of my hoops. It's the kind of thing I would have done back in when I was in graduate school because I was an idiot. Um, you know, it's not bad, and it's used a lot. And like I said, it's very highly cited. It may be a little bit better to talk about transfer-appropriate processing. Transfer-appropriate processing, transfer is just like transfer trading. So transfer-appropriate processing is like, I want you to remember a list of words. Well, words have meanings. So when you think about meanings, you're going to remember that. (coughs) On the other hand, if I have you read a book or even generate the idea of how to throw a fastball. No, let's not listen to a fastball. It's easy. How to throw a curveball. I can explain to all you how to throw a curveball. It's really pretty easy. And you can study it. I can explain it right now. You put your two fingers over the two seams of the baseball, and when you throw it, I'm not going to go through a whole wind-up. That's weird. But when you throw it, you spin it. Okay? The ball spins because the seams of the ball, it actually drops when it gets towards home plate if you, if you throw that's a curveball properly. Wow, that's really that's semantic knowledge. Now let's have you throw a curveball. You will be really shitty at it unless somebody here already knows how to throw a good breaking ball. You'll be better if I had you come out here and we're going to play baseball for, for half an hour and you practice throwing curveballs. And I just say, just do this. <coughs> And that's not semantic. In fact, that's procedural and implicit learning. So maybe that's transfer-appropriate processing. The thing is, why is it always the semantic processing that works better? Because we always use words. And words have meanings. Okay? So levels of processing isn't bad, and it really has... It organizes data more than anything. Um, And I think I've... Many times, because Craig and Lockhart and Tolvin were all the same... Department, you'd hear them talk about this stuff because this is a this is all they would say that this is a non-memory systems approach. This is actually just explaining data and explaining phenomena. Whereas people like Tulbig were into a memory systems approach, and they they would always say eventually that they're really that they can coexist. So Tolvig talked about the episodic semantic distinction. I'm not going to go into that too much today. I've talked about it before. You should have read the paper. I will say that episodic memory is explicit and semantic memory is implicit. Okay? There's even physiological evidence of the sort about this distinction. Isn't it? Because of HM. Right? And because of KC. And because of anybody else that has memory problems and they get a bump on the head, they seem to get problems with episodic memory. 
and not with semantic math. So it's got, like I said, it's a very rough cognitive neuroscience-y type things. Now, when you start looking at animal work, it becomes pretty clear that the hippocampus is doing something, and you're moving it in a rat, something else, whatever. The closest thing you have to people is really living a moment ahead of that tumor or, or, or a stroke or some such thing. Now, for, um, Tolbing maintains that only humans have episodic memory. So only a human knows what it knows. Only a human knows that it's a human. Only a human knows that it did this this time and did this at another time. For him, that's because it involves consciousness. The magic term, consciousness. Because it must be self-referential. It's got to be about myself. And if it's about myself, it must be about, I must be reflecting about myself. I must be conscious. And if I'm conscious, well, only humans are conscious. That would be a totality. I don't think he's right. Um, and I'll tell you why I don't think he's right. There's some nice experimental data that I can... Yeah, it's compared to non-experimental data. Um, oh my, this thing just attacked me. That was painful, actually. Oh, what's going on? Okay, this is something that Nikki Clayton and Al Camel and Ken Chang did. They had... Uh, was it Blue Jays? Or, no, it was Clark Stockcrackers. I think it was, might, have been, might have been Blue Jays. It doesn't really matter. And they... Have the animals fly into, I don't know why I erased this, I just explained this. They have the, the animals fly into an aviary and they run into different kinds of food sites. Some of them have seeds. Oh no, that's right, that's what yeah, okay, do. They fly in, they have two bowls of food. One of them is seeds and one of them is worms, little mealworms. They love mealworms. Now, one of the things these birds do is they store food. So they store the food, and then you remove them from the aviary, you let them back in tomorrow, the next day, the next day. They retrieve them using memory. Now, if the birds are storing seeds, the seeds last forever. They don't go off, they don't go right. Well, they would eventually. It takes a long time. Little worms go back. In fact, they turn into bugs and go away. So you've got to remember to get to the worms quickly. And they do. They go back to the worms first. And if you've taken a long enough period, you say, well, of course, they like worms better than what they see. Fair enough. Fine. Then let's make it five days later and let them go back in. And let's say by five days, they know the worms would be gone. So they don't go to the worms now, they go to where they put the seeds. I don't know about you, but that sounds like episodic memory to me. That sounds like knowing I did something, and I know what the contents is of the thing I put there, and I know when I put it there. That sounds to me like, let's see, I did this then. That sounds a lot like episodic memory to me. So, Tolving doesn't 
his comeback basically is, yeah, but they're not conscious. And the comeback to him is, what's consciousness? And how will I measure it? That's the comeback, right? I have a lot of friends, uh, when I go to this conference, I don't think I'm wearing a t-shirt right now. Yeah, the conference on comparative cognition, a lot of the talks are actually about episodic memory and animals. There's usually a whole session on that. And a lot of it's really cool stuff with, with like apes. And like the apes have theory of mind. Very cool stuff. But also there's the stuff, the first really good evidence I saw was the stuff that Nikki Clayton, uh, Al Campbell, and Ken Cheng did with these birds knowing what they put where when. And they basically knew the expiry date of the items. That's sort of what they did. So that's kind of cool. What's the next slide? Uh, okay. If we're gonna, I can't. I, there's no way we can finish this. No. Um, questions. All right. We'll finish this up next time. Because um, the next bit is actually kind of subtle and complicated, <laughs> way more than Sam was, but more understandable. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um,
Also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.